So if you'll turn in your Bibles uh, with me this morning to 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be in chapter 4, covering verses 1 to 7. I titled this morning's message, Walking to Please God. And let's uh, pray. Father, we do come before you. We come before your precious word, Lord, that guides us, directs us, convicts us, encourages us. It does all of those things, Lord, for our benefit. Because you love us. You've given us your written word to speak truth into us. And Lord, I pray that we would have open ears to hear. That we would hear Your voice and hear Your Spirit speak to us this morning and that we would respond to how You speak to our hearts. And we thank You for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Calvary Chapel Fellowship, as well as pretty much all the Calvary Chapels, there's about 1,700 Calvary Chapels around the world, by the way, if you didn't know that. But the beginning days of Calvary Chapel, uh, Pastor Chuck Smith came to a place in his own Christian walk and his own teaching in his church, particular church, that he believed that taking people through the entire Word of God was important to take people chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the Word of God was the best method of you being able to grab onto the Word of God, to actually be able to hear it taught, for you to be able to follow along with it, and for you to be able to put the dots together. When we get to the end of 1 Thessalonians, when we get to the end of 2 Thessalonians, you should be able to say, I have a better understanding of why the Apostle Paul wrote these two letters. That's important for us when we read our Bible, that it's actually making sense to us. That it's not just somebody teach, but we're actually examining the things, and I encourage you to do that. Examine the things that I teach. Make sure that they're in accordance with what you see in the Word of God. The days that we're living in, the Word of God is really under attack. There are a lot of churches that are even moving away from making that a, a, a central part of their service. It's more about all the other things that you can give the people. And I believe that really all I can give you is God's Word. That's it. The Word of God. If that's not enough for you, then you probably won't find this church being sufficient. But if you're here to hunger for more of God through His Word, it'll be enough. And God will give you what you need in your walk with Him. But have you ever noticed when you read the Word of God that it never hides man's sin? It gives us all the good, the bad, and the ugly in it. Aren't you glad? It gives us a little bit of hope, doesn't it? Because we know that we're imperfect. And we see our failures and our sins. And and God brings those things out in His Word 
so that we can see that there is forgiveness with God. There's hope in Jesus Christ. He's given us all the encouragement we need, but He also exhorts us in these areas that we need to grow in. Paul spoke very highly of the church at Thessalonica. Remember when we started this book, uh, one of the first studies I gave was the model church, the church at Thessalonica. And he spoke of these believers as being a model for the other churches in Macedonia to follow. These were fairly new believers, but they were doing the work that God had called them to do. And they had turned from their idols to serve the living and true God. It was a great work of God, just like He has done in many of our lives here. He's done a miracle in our lives. We're not the same people that we used to be, and it's because of Jesus Christ. One of the things that we also find in Scripture is that it's a life of growing, it's a life of maturing, it's a life of moving forward. God never wants us to remain just stagnant and remain the same. But we also see that there is a battle. You know battle I'm talking about. The battle between your flesh and what it wants to do. And the battle of God's Spirit living in you, compelling you to live for Him. Compelling you to live righteously, righteously and holy in life. And then your flesh at times wanting to come up against that. Or do the opposite of that. That's the battle that you and I are going to face until the day you have your new glorified body. And that curse of sin is done away with in heaven. You're going to have that battle that is going to go on. So don't be discouraged. You won't be the last Christian that has struggled with temptations and sins. There are many of us here today that I believe that God wants to speak something into our hearts from our message this morning. This particular message is not always an easy one to take in. We're going to just cover these first seven verses of chapter chapter 4. But I also shared with you last week that the last two chapters of Thessalonians get into the practical application that Paul is conveying to these believers. He was in the first three chapters, he was looking back and praising God and remembering the work that God had done while he was there with them. And then he got that praise report back from Timothy of how well they were doing and that the gospel was going out everywhere they went. But we see as Paul moved on in this letter, he knew that there was still growth that needed to happen. That he wanted to see these believers maturing. He didn't want to see them standing still in their walks. He, wanted, he didn't want to see them going backward. You know, backward is backsliding. He wanted to see them going forward in their walks. You see, the proper way to walk has a forward motion normally. Normally, we don't like going like this. 
And we don't walk typically back. We like walking forward. That's the way we were made. That's the life of a Christian. Motion going forward in your walk. Before we get into these seven verses, I want to remind you that the Apostle Paul used a number of different metaphors to describe the Christian life. We know these, we've probably read them, about the runner, about running the race. He likens your Christian walk like you're running a race, and that there's a finish line at the end. And you're running hard and you need to prepare yourself, you need to be people that are building up that endurance as you run the race. He also likened our Christian walk to a fighter. Fighting the good fight is what he refers to it as. It's that that fight, that battle, that spiritual battle that we enter into every single day. Every day you get out of bed. It's a new fight that's there. Whether it's your flesh or things in the world, the fight is there. Paul likens it to that, to a fighter. But he also speaks of the Christian walk as a life of walking. Walking, one foot in front of the other, moving forward in your Christian walk, maturing as you go. You know, the word walking in Scripture is actually the Greek word parapateo. Not that that means anything. I don't speak Greek, but that is the word, parapateo. The word is used figuratively to describe to us the whole of the Christian life, the whole of the Christian walk. Everything that makes up your Christian, it's referred to as your walk, your walk as a believer. Most of us as parents, one of the exciting days was that when our child got to that place and grew to that point where they took their first step. Remember how exciting that was? As you just kind of yelled out, they're walking! And we got all excited to see them just take that first step. It's pretty amazing. Exciting. Then we wanted to see them not just taking one step and falling, but we wanted to see them take two and three. And pretty soon they're running around getting into everything. That's the life of a parent. It's been said that the Christian life, that it begins with a step of faith. But that step leads to a walk of faith. I like that. We don't want to just be babies and baby steps our whole life. We want that baby step to turn into a walk of faith. A walk of maturity, a walk of growing in the things of God. If we were to just bring this whole thing of walking down into general terms, we would look at it this way. When you walk, what do you do? You put one foot in front of the other. That's walking. Very simple. Just one foot in front of the other. But 
it suggests that there's progress. You see, when you walk, you typically have a place that you're going, don't you? You have a, a, a place that you're going to end up when you're walking. So it suggests in the spiritual part of your walk, it suggests growth when you think of walking. It, it, it suggests maturing. In the book of Hebrews, we read where the writer, and I believe it was Paul, he said, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. And so what we see is that this walking that Paul is speaking about here is leaving the elementary things. In other words, there's a point at which in your Christian walk, you need to grow up. We don't like to see our children stay babies. We want to see them mature. We want to see them grow. And that's the same thing for us as believers, spiritually speaking. We want to grow up. Paul writing to the Romans in chapter 6, verse 4, he says that we are to walk in newness of life. That word newness is a new quality of living. You see, when you give your life to Christ, He enables you. He gives you what you need by His Holy Spirit, by the work of God in your life, to walk in a new quality of living. In other words, we should be different people. We shouldn't be the same. In Romans chapter 8, Paul also talked about walking. He says, walk after the Spirit. Walk after the Spirit. If the Spirit of God is living in you, He's also wanting you to walk after the things of the Spirit. The things that are good for you, the spiritual things in life. To walk after those things. In Romans 13.13, Paul said, walk honestly in this world. Walk honestly amongst people that even don't know Christ. Let them see something different in you. It all falls under this principle of walking as a believer and growing as a believer. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul says that we are to walk in good works. We're, we're to grow in works. We're, we're to walk in them. It's, it's the natural outcome of a real conversion. Somebody gets saved. There should be good works coming forth out of your life. In Ephesians 4.1, Paul says, Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. In Ephesians 4.17, we should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. We should be different. We should no longer walk like we did before we knew Christ, but we should be different. Ephesians 5.2, Paul says, walk in love. Ephesians 5.8, says, walk as children of the light. Ephesians 5.15, walk circumspectly, or it could also be translated, walk in wisdom. As believers, not as fools, but as wise, Paul says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. All of these have to do with our walk. 
Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. The walk of a Christian shouldn't be one that is always requiring God to give you something tangible for you to move out and to do something. You see, the walk of faith, really, as a believer, is that, God, I can believe you even when I don't always see the tangible. You've proven yourself to me. You've shown me through your words. You've shown me through life circumstances that you are faithful to me. That you are able to do above and beyond all I could ever ask or think. You've proven it to me time and time again. And so why do I always need the tangible to believe you for something, God? Why can't I stand upon just the simple faith that, God, you have already shown me in your word. You have already promised me this in your word. And I'll stand upon that even if I don't see the end result right now. We all know the difference of walking in darkness and walking in the light. The Apostle John wrote about this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. He says, this is the message which we have heard from Him, and, and we declare it to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with God... I could put it this way. If we say we're a Christian and we have fellowship with God, but we walk in darkness, John says we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. That fellowship one with another, you know where where I believe it first starts? This way. We have fellowship one with another between you and God, and then that fellowship at this level happens. But it says, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, continues to cleanse you from all sin. Isn't that incredible? Just in that relationship that you have with the living God. Walking in darkness? Think back. Think back of your days before Christ. You could care less what God's Word said. You weren't accountable to it. It wasn't anything you followed. Didn't, you know. And then all of a sudden you give your life to Christ and you care. Wow, I care what God thinks of me. I care what I do and how I walk. That's a work of God in the life of a believer. We know of a man in the Old Testament. He was the father of the long-lived Methuselah. He was also the great-grandfather of Noah. His his name was Enoch. And we're told in Genesis 5.24 that Enoch, that he walked with God. That's how it describes it. He walked with God and he was not, for God took him, That's like the rapture. That's like God just taking him. He never saw death. God took him. Do you know how old he was when when God took him? 365 years old. 
for some of us, just living 365 days is a challenge. How about 365 years of walking faithfully with the Lord? And God saw fit to say, I'm just going to simply take you home to be with me, Enoch, because you faithfully walked with me. I pray that my life is growing and maturing in that way. We finished chapter 3 last week with Paul praying for the believers in verses 11 to 13. Let's reread it. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that He may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of His saints. Paul's prayer for these believers. Paul wanted to see them advance. He wanted to see them grow. He didn't want to see them stand still. He wanted to disciple them. He didn't want their love just to say, well, we love one another. He wanted it to abound and to increase and to grow even more. Did you know that you can actually fall more in love with God tomorrow? You could be more in love with Him than you are today. Do you know that your love for one another can grow? Do you know that it's not just you give your life to Christ and yeah, I love people now like I never loved them before, but it'll actually grow. It'll grow this way. It'll grow this way. And it's a work of God. It's laying down our life for one another. It's His love that towards us. It's incredible. Paul says, I want that love in you to grow. I'm praying that it will abound and grow even further. It'll have such an impact on the church in Thessalonica. It'll have such an impact on the people here at Calvary Chapel Fellowship. If that love towards one another abounds and it grows. If it grows this way, it's going to affect you. If it grows this way, it's going to affect this church. We're going to now look at these seven verses. I titled this morning's message, Walking to Please God. Let's read it together. Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more. There's that abounding more and more. Just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul here, now in chapter 4, he begins to urge them. He begins to, in a sense, beg them and exhort them that they would abound more and more. You see, abounding in something speaks of an abundance of something. It speaks of excelling in even in moral issues in life. This morning, it's about abounding in your walk so that you will please God. 
abounding in your walk so that you will please God. You see, that should be our ultimate goal. Our ultimate desire should be, I want to please you, Lord, with my life. That should be all of our desire. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews said about Enoch in the New Testament. Hebrews 11.5 By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. And he was not found. Why? Because God had taken him. For before he was taken, before God took him to heaven, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Wow. From Genesis 5 to the hallmark of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, Enoch being one listed in the hallmark of faith, one that God had taken by faith and he went to be without seeing death. And it was because he pleased God. That's what Paul is exhorting the believers at Thessalonica, that you would abound more and more so that you would know how you ought to walk and to please God. In our text this morning, we start with these words, finally then, brethren, or we urge you or we exhort you that you would abound more and more. He doesn't just urge them to abound, but that they would abound more and more. You see, when you see those words more and more, it's you can't stay still. We can't stay still in our Christian walks and say, hey, I think I'm there. I think I'm finally at a place where I'm I'm mature. You know, I I want to mature even more. The longer you've been a Christian, you'll still see areas you're like, God, would you grow me in this area? Would you help me in this area? I want to abound more and more. I'm not content with where I'm at. When we get to 2 Thessalonians, we're going to see that this prayer was answered. That Paul prayed for the believers there at Thessalonica. And in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says in his second letter, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. So here's a second letter now that he's writing to the believers there and he's saying, God has answered my prayer. I'm hearing and I've heard the reports and you're abound, your love is abounding even more so. These last two chapters are Paul's final words to them. And he does it in the way of exhortations. He does it in the way of teaching them doctrine. He wants to encourage them, but he wants to exhort them also. Paul says, this kind of walk is what's pleasing to God, which tells me if there's this kind of walk that's pleasing to him, 
then there must be a kind of walk that's not pleasing to God. Right? Either your walk is pleasing to God, or it's a walk that's not pleasing to God. I don't think that there's one in between. We're either pleasing God with our lives and how we're living, or we're not pleasing God in our lives and the way that we live. Paul starts in verse 1 with walking to please God. And we won't get there today, but he finishes in verse 12 with walking properly towards those who are on the outside. You see, that's always the order that we find in Scripture. It's always first this way. Your relationship with God And when your relationship with the God is growing and good this way, it will automatically begin to affect your relationships at this level. So if you say, my relationship with this way is not very good between me and God, I can guarantee you that your relationship, at least in your marriage, in your relationships with people at work, in your relationships with people at church, whatever it is, it's probably not as good as it should be. Or it may not be good at all. Because it really starts this way. In your relationship with God. He goes on in verse 2, he says, For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul here, in a sense, what he's doing is he's just simply reminding them of something that he has already told them. How many of us need to be reminded of things? Again and again and again. We get reminded of things in Scripture, don't we? Every time we hear the Word of God talk, we go, no, I've heard that one. I don't need to hear that one again. No, we need to be reminded. Why do we take communion? You need to remember Why do we do, you know, because we're people that forget. Paul knew that. God knows that. He says you need to be people that continue to receive because you'll forget. Continual reminders. If we look back to chapter 1, Paul says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and much assurance. And then he says this, As you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. He said, you saw it when we were here. I'm just reminding you of it. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak the gospel of God in much conflict. He's reminding them of that when they had come into him. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says, For neither at any time... Did we use flattering words when we came to you, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness? God is witness. He's reminding of of them of that. In chapter 3, verse 3, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that you would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. Another reminder to them as they were under great persecution. And then in our text this morning, you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. 
He sat and discipled them and told them these things. And now he's writing to them and just reminding them of what he had already told them. Looking ahead into chapter 5, verse 1, he says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. He had already told them those things in his discipleship with them. Timothy's report to Paul consisted of many good things that the church had done and was doing. They had turned from their idols to serve the living and true God. They were taking the gospel everywhere as they went. It was a great report, but Paul apparently had also got some word from Timothy that there was some compromise within the church. There was some struggles that were going on with the believers there. A great report, but there were still struggles. That's church. You see, there are churches that will always have people that are doing well, and then there will be people that are struggling and not doing so well. That's the life of a church. That's the life of a believer at times. And we've all probably been on both sides of that at some point in our Christian walk. The first thing on the list that Paul gives to them was about abstaining from sexual immorality. Now, this appears to be more of a preventative exhortation than it does to specifically be calling out a particular person there in Thessalonica. Sexual immorality was very common in the Roman era, like it is today. Paul had his great concerns for the believers there in Thessalonica. Not just there, but in all of the churches because the Roman Empire was really inundated with sexual immorality. He knew that they were living in a sexed-up society, just like we do. Nothing's changed, has it? Technology has, but nothing has changed. And so here's Paul, knowing that these believers are living in that type of society, and he is compelled to address the issue with them. We know that reading in history, that the Roman Empire, that it had a lot of problems when it came, and even within the beginning days of the early church, a lot of problems over the issue of sexual immorality. You see, prostitution in the Roman Empire was legal and it was rampant. They also dealt with the issue of concubines and men having concubines for their own sexual pleasure. It was culturally acceptable to have that. There were mistresses. There was homosexuality. There was incest, pedophilia, transvestites. All of those things that we see in our world today, they experienced then. They lived in that. 
kind of culture. If they would have had internet in the Roman Empire and had access to pornography, they would have been doing it. That was the kind of culture that they lived in. They engaged even within the temple prostitutes. The Babylonians handed this down. And even in the name of their religion under their gods, uh, they, they would allow these temple prostitutes to go in and there would be men that would go there and have intercourse there all in the name of religion. This was the kind of society that they were living in. But one of the things that made it even more so dangerous to the, to the church there in the early church and within this Roman Empire and this culture was that they didn't have very much of a New Testament model around them yet. You see, the church was expanding. The church was growing. Believers were multiplying. But they still lived in a culture that was always pulling against them, pulling against what they should do and bringing about that temptation. And so Paul felt very compelled to warn them. They didn't have the barriers that even we have today. You have the whole written Word of God that you hold in your hand. You have a a church that you can come to as often as you want. You can come in here, and there's things we have barriers and brothers and sisters around that can help us in those ways. The early churches, they were living in this culture. It was almost like they were open prey for that, and Paul had his great concerns. Look at verse uh, 3. Paul is going to address this issue. He says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage and defraud his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has given us His Holy Spirit. We lived ourselves, my family, in Europe. We lived in Wales, in the UK. We lived in a culture that was even a lot more sexually promiscuous than even here living in the United States. If you've ever been to Europe, you know what I'm talking about. The Christians that have to live in that environment, it's a great temptation. There's all this that goes around them day in and day out. Whenever a culture moves away from the Word of God, from the things of God, it begins to take on this sexual immorality as well as all other sorts of sin. That's what Europe is contending with. And the reason they're contending with it is because 
they've turned their backs on God. If you turn your back away from the Lord and you go the way of the world, it will be so much easier for you to fall to these things. A person in Wales getting married is becoming more rare than people that just live together. They, they call them their partners more than they say, this is my wife or husband. Because culturally, that is the way that Europe is going. They departed for a big part from the living God. And with that, everything else follows. The family begins to break down. The children begin to go away. The whole thing just begins to fall apart because they have gotten away from the principles of God's Word. We lived in that. We saw it. It was actually very hard. Actually, going if you were to go down on a Friday night or a Saturday night down here to city center or downtown Winston, it'd be like a walk at Disneyland compared to going down onto the high street down on a Friday or Saturday night or actually any night during the week and see how the people, young people, old people, but young primarily, how they live and the pubs, the clubs, the partying that goes on and the sexual immorality. It's a whole nation of people that have turned away from the living God. It's what will happen. It's what's happening in the United States of America. And it'll get worse. And the only thing that keeps it at bay at all is the Christian influence that's here. Remove the Christians, and here we go. It'll all go. Paul knew the dangers of sexual immorality in his day, and he knew the effects that it would have on these believers' walks. He knew how detrimental it would be to them. So what does God require of us as Christians in this area of sexual immorality or sexual behavior, we could call it? Paul tells us, and he says, uh, he tells them, and he also says it to us, he says, for this is the will of God. Don't miss that. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, or your morality, or your sexual immorality, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. It's the will of God. Whenever something in Scripture says this is the will of God, it's not open for debate. It's not like, you know, we could sit around and pray and go, is this right or wrong or should we do this should we go be doing this or that when it comes to sexual immorality the will of God is that you would abstain from sexual immorality it's not a question it's not a debate but why do we have that debate going on (laughs) that's the question It's, it's in what some call church today There are churches today that are saying we're a homosexual church because we can come together and be comfortable here, but we're a church and we're Christians. It's not open for debate because God has already declared it in His Word. 
from verses 3 to 7, Paul gives five exhortations that pertain to sexual immorality. Actually, if you have an old King James Bible, your Bible would read that you should abstain from fornication. It's the same word in the Greek word. Sexual immorality or fornication. Immorality, here it's referring in this context to the sexual sins. It's referring to immoral character. Uh, The word is actually immorality is defined as wickedness and evilness. Is how you would, if you looked it up and defined it. Fornication is the Greek word pornania. We get our word pornography from it, from that Greek word, which is the use of illicit sexual intercourse or the the using of illicit sexual intercourse, which includes adultery, even within the marriage. But the strongest word that we can find in Scripture in the Greek is found in Jude verse 7. It's when a person gives themselves up to fornication, implying an excessive indulgence within it. Jude 7 reads this way. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having, and this is what it means, giving themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Wow. It doesn't get any stronger wording than that. We know what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. And because of the the sexual immorality that was rampant through the city, God destroyed it. It was in the days of Noah that God brought the flood and the same thing was transpiring. Jesus Christ is coming back. We're living in a day and age now where we are seeing that in front of our eyes. Excessive indulgence is that strongest word that we can find in Scripture for this immoral behavior. God says, I will judge it. The first exhortation that Paul gives in verse 3 is that we should abstain from sexual immorality. It's Abstaining means to hold oneself from something. It's to keep oneself from evil practices. In other words, we have a responsibility to manage ourselves to manage our own body, to manage our minds, to do, to do those things that would keep us so that we would follow the Lord with our whole heart, that we would abstain. Paul gave us a victory shouting Galatians 5.16. He says, I say then walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's a victory shout. What's it mean though? I need to walk close to Christ. 
I need to be full of His Holy Spirit. I need to say, God, I can't go out and live in a sexed up world and keep my eyes straight and keep my eyes on You. Lord, unless I'm full of You, unless Your Spirit is in me and upon me and I'm walking close to You, I'll surely fall, Lord. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh and they're contrary to one another so that You you do not do the things that You wish. Paul says also in verse 4, another exhortation, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. You should know how, he says. To possess our vessel means that we would gain mastery over it. We know our little areas. We know our weaknesses better than other people know us. That we would not give way to adverse circumstances is what it's meaning. Another translation reads this. It says that you shall win. You see, the Lord wants us to win. He wants us to have victory. He wants us to have a victory shout. He wants us to be able to actually say no when those things come our way. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.13, he says, No temptation has overtaken you such as common to man. There is not one of us here that could say, you know what, you don't know the temptation I experienced. This is too, this was a rough one for me. You don't know, you've never been there. There is no temptation that has overtaken you, but such as common to man. Here's the key to it. Here's the victory shout. God is faithful who will not allow you or suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but with the temptation, He's able to make a way of escape that you're able to endure it. What is the way of escape for you? If you find yourself being caught up into pornography, into sexual immorality, in whatever way, being unfaithful, what is your way of escape? How do you get free from that? He'll give you the way of escape. If you'll look to Him, if you'll trust Him and say, God, I need a way of escape. In my flesh, I can't. But in You, I can. Paul says you should know how to possess your vessel in sanctification and honor. Paul writing to a compromising church in Corinth In chapter 6, verse 18, he says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. That price was the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Do you see it that way? Your body, your spirit, they're God's. Why? Because you gave your life to Jesus Christ. He bought you with a price. The third exhortation in verse 5, Paul says... Not in passion of lust. 
like the Gentiles who do not know God. See how he compares that? Comparing them to those that don't know God. You shouldn't be living as those who don't know God and who are not accountable. Paul says in Romans, they're not subject to the things of God, neither indeed can be. We should be different. We're new creations in Christ. You see, lust is an issue of the heart. It's an issue of the mind. It comes through the eye. It's an issue of the flesh, and it's not this that's hanging on your bones. It's, it's that old, it's that man, that's that flesh that wants to rear up and please itself. Jesus says, I say to you that if you look on a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery with her in your own heart. Adultery is listed in the Ten Commandments, one of the ten. Fornication is sex outside of marriage. Incest, you can read about it in Leviticus and do it. Homosexuality, Leviticus and Romans, Corinthians, bestiality, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Exodus, and more and more, and the list goes on. Nothing's new under the sun. We live in a church age where the church and believers are under attack in this area. I'm glad our youth are in right now. Listen, youth. This is for you too. The fourth thing that Paul exhorts them in verse 6, that no one should take advantage and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. Taking advantage of and defrauding his brother in this matter. That's like saying you have just overstepped your bounds. You just went and took another man's wife or slept with a a, a, a a woman or a woman sleeping with a man. You've just overstepped your bounds. Trespassing God's will is saying no to His will for your life. Trespassing His will is crossing the line. That's what a trespass is. There's sins in the Bible that we commit that they're not necessarily a trespass. A trespass is when you come to the line, it's been drawn in the sand, you know it's wrong, you know the will of God, and you just simply say, I don't care, and you cross over it. That's a trespass. Paul in this context is speaking specifically of sexual purity in our lives. And Paul then warns that God is the avenger of these things. He says, God will see to it that justice is done. You see, there's always ramifications for these sins. We'll be able to ask King David someday what those ramifications really meant to him in detail. We got a lot of them in Scripture. The fifth reason for living a pure and holy life is in verse 7, God has not called us to uncleanness, but to holiness. 
Hebrews 12.14 says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The Lord is holy. He's high. He's lifted up. And we're to pursue after holiness. He calls us holy ones. He calls us saints. And that's simply because He has imparted His holiness to you. But we're also called to be holy. To seek after righteousness in our life. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. And then it says, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Sanctification is being set apart for God's use, His holy use. They sanctified all the vessels that went into the temple. They went through a whole purification thing to even use those vessels within the temple. Sanctification happens the moment you give your life to Christ. He takes and sets your your life apart for Him. He says, you're mine now. I'm going to use you. But there's also the sanctification process that is going on in your life by God's Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. He is sanctifying you and making you more into the image of Jesus Christ every single time you open up the Word of God, every time you call upon the Holy Spirit to convict you and change you and mold you and shape you. He is sanctifying you in your life and making you more like like Him. Jesus did not pray... In John 17, that the Father would take His disciples out of this world. You live in a world that is full of temptations and sexual immorality, things that want to draw you away. But He didn't pray that God would take you out of this world that's like that, but that you should be kept from the evil one. That was His prayer for us. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, Jesus said to His Father. Sanctify them by Your truth. Your Word is truth, Jesus says. If you want to be sanctified, cleansed, and you want this mind to get cleaned up, if you want those things to happen, then you need to get into God's Word. You need to hear it taught more. You need to read it more. You need to spend time, and God will refresh and renew your mind. We need to know our position in Christ. We need to flee sexual temptation just like Joseph did with Potiphar's wife. We need to live according to the Word of God. Psalm 119 verse 9. Great Scripture for our youth and for all of us. How can a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. As our young people grow up into men and women of God, that cleansing process that goes on in our lives when we go out into this world and get dirtied up every day at school or wherever it might be. We need to take heed to the Word of God. 
Lastly, by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, and I believe this is a big one. It's what I've already shared. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not, there's the promise, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What happens if I don't walk in the Spirit? Well, to me it seems opposite. If you don't walk in the Spirit, then we're going to yield to the lust of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. I know that the message today, it's heavy for me when I'm reading these things because it it, it really gets down to some areas of life that I know that all of us at different levels have contended with in life. But I asked you all a while back, how many of you want me to just teach the Word of God without compromising? I, I saw everybody shake their head yes. So there it is. It's the Word of God. It's what God says. I have to take it in. You have to take it in. And then the important thing is, is what do we do with it? That's what's important. What will you do with these exhortations? We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.